Today's episode of the RiderFlex podcast is sponsored by our friends at Colorado Startups. Their mission is to connect startups with needed capital and talent to build industry-changing companies in Colorado. They are the largest online community of founders in the state and a great resource for local entrepreneurs building a big company. Okay, very good. I want to ask you about the whole Scottish thing where you went over to Edinburgh and all that. I want to- Okay, that was fun. Love it. I'm a huge, uh, my wife's currently watching this show on Netflix called Outlander, which is oh, a yeah. story about mm-hmm. Scotland and all that. It's a big love story, so it's a little too mushy for me, but I do try and watch it with her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've seen a couple episodes, but yeah. Uh, okay. Plus, I'm a huge Braveheart guy, so. Oh, yeah. I wrote my, uh, referencing Braveheart a little bit. <laughs> is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, yep, I wrote cool. my thesis about Scottish identity. Although, don't you know? Don't go too in depth there, because that, that was a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that was probably a cool uh, one year. Well, you were over there for one year, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I bet yeah. that was. But that was fun. Did you drink a lot of beer? Party a oh, lot? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes, probably more than I ever have for a sustained period in life. <laughs> was in Scotland for sure. The culture. <laughs> Emily Sikorsi and Justin Foster on the RiderFlex podcast. How are you guys doing today? Fantastic. It's so good to be with you, Steve. Excellent, Steve. Thank you for having us on. You bet. I love your little story, man. I, I did all kinds of homework on you. It's so great. If you're about to interview somebody and they have lots of videos or, or you know, podcasts or things they've already done and you can pull it up, you're like, oh, cool. Let me just check that personality. Mm-hmm. The, the ones you're about to interview and you can't find them anywhere, you're like, oh, shit. Okay, I have no idea how they're going to be. <laughs> um, before we get into the company, Root and River, let's do some personal family, maybe some stuff like before you met. So, Emily, if you, we can start with you. Just talk to us, you know, give us some personal stuff and some family stuff and your early career up into the point where you met Justin. Is that is that okay? Absolutely, yeah. Great. So... I grew up in the Southwest. I'm from Arizona. I live in the Phoenix area and sort of grew up between two worlds because I would spend summers in Youngstown, Ohio, where my parents were from. Oh. So, um, and they had a very uh, ethnic upbringing there as both children of, of Italian, Italian families, second generation. So, um, yeah, so I grew up in the Southwest, which was new and different and a whole kind of different culture. And then also spending a lot of time and the, the you know the rust belt so to speak. now now youngstown, youngstown ohio was your dad a springsteen fan because there's some songs right in there <laughs> you I, know my dad was like a little bit before springsteen okay okay yeah he appreciated the ethic of, of springsteen, gotcha okay for sure those are two, but those we were are two huge. different worlds right two different worlds yeah yeah totally different worlds and it was such an interesting dichotomy in my life like we were huge rocky fans like uh-huh. i know i mean could get emotional about all the Rocky movies, but my family was, we would sit and we would watch them. We had like the VHS tapes like worn out and we watched them back to back, my brothers and I. Um, in fact, the other day, one of them came on, it was a Rocky three. And I was like, oh, I had to sit out on the sofa and my oldest daughter was there and I was like crying. She's like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. Now VHS, I don't, I don't know what that is. What is that? No, I'm just yeah. <laughs> we all know, us three, we know. Yeah, we know. We'll let the youngins discover it. We can Google it after this. 
Right. Um, so as I mentioned, I grew up, I had three brothers. I was the only girl. Uh, again, very like uh, ethnic family, Italian, American, and um, Catholic upbringing. Right. And uh, I was always sort of, I, again, I had two worlds. So there was a world where I was trying to like hang with the boys, compete. We were always playing sports. And I was always on the losing team because I was the weaker competitor. Um, and then I would retreat into sort of my own little world of imagination and creativity and language ah. and reading and words and making art. Okay. And so my upbringing was really a very loving environment, but it was like bouncing back and forth between these two realities in my life. Yeah. All right. And so I always sort of felt like a little different, but also super competitive um, being from a large family to like stand out and hold my own space. So started, I actually went to Japan for a year after I graduated from college and I taught English there because again, I wanted to be different. Oh, 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 okay. (laughs) Cool. All right. And yeah, it was super cool. Very challenging. And then uh, when I came back, I actually started journalism and I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do after I graduated. So maybe Japan was like a little bit of a punt to try to figure that out. And when I came back, I was certain I wanted to, to be in journalism. And luckily I had the opportunity, even though I didn't have any formal training, that's not what my degree was in, was in communication. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was lucky enough to convince an editor to hire me. <laughs> And um, first day on the job, I walked up to one of the senior reporters and I was like, hey, um, I totally know what I'm doing, first of all, but can you give me just a little rundown of like journalism 101? (laughs) So I mean, (laughs) I was green. I was green. Uh, Uh, Anyway, I fell in love with the, that craft and came in at a time before journalism really changed a lot. So it was a beautiful time to like learn the basics. Anyway, I spent eight and a half years there working my way up through the organization. Sure, but um, then I did a little PR, stepped out. Then after that, I started my own business for a couple of years, um, which I know a lot of your listeners are early stage right. you know, entrepreneurs. And uh, I was like not starting a business, but I was totally starting a business. Uh, and then I, at, through that process, one of my clients began buying more and more of my time. And I ended up going in-house for a human behavioral research company that uh, I served as a VP of corporate communication. Mm. And all of this, doing all this while being married, married to my husband for um, 18 years. And I have two daughters who are 17 and 13. So raising kids, working the whole time, creating businesses, being a part of my outspoken family. It was a lot. And there were a (laughs) lot of low points in there. But uh, somehow I, I made it to here. Two teenagers at the same time. Ooh, those, that's fun, isn't it? <laughs> Ooh, there's nothing more challenging, I think. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, I, at 14, I, I went through it myself with four grown children, and uh, mm-hmm. all four of them were teenagers at the same time. So, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you, you were kind of in and out. You had started your own thing, and then you were kind of pulled back in, but you had tasted entrepreneurship, and you're like, ooh, I, I don't know. I really don't want to be an employee again. I want to do my own thing. And then at some point, you met Justin, right? How, now, how'd you meet? So, Justin, you want to pick it up from there? Oh, sure, sure. Go for it. Yeah, so um, we met at a conference uh, coming up on uh, seven years ago um, in January. Um, yeah, that's right, seven years ago. And just hit it off, our, it, but we also had like this fiery, like like it was, it was just an interesting dynamic. Um, 
I'm used, I'll say this, I'll say this, Steve, I'm used to being somewhat charming and persuasive. No, and, come on. And neither of those worked. They still don't work seven years later. <laughs> and I just was so impressed by Emily's like blend of like grace and intellectual horsepower, like a, you know, like an F-14. Was she know. speaking? Were you, was she, was she speaking? And you're in the speakers was essentially the kind of the MC of the event. I, I see. Got uh, it. Okay. And just her directness. And I just was very intrigued by her, uh, by her. And so eventually she brought me into the, the company, the behavioral research company. And we did a, we to come in and give her some support related to the brand. And we just worked well together. We, we sometimes use the metaphor. It was like Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton, you know, like they were never a like, into, they weren't ever like a thing thing, but they were musically. And that's how Emily and I were like, our voices just went well together. And, um, and I'll, I'll give you the very short version of this. I asked her to do a project with me outside of her company, just on a whim. She said, yes, we did it sitting in a, in the parking lot of the quality Inn in Greenville or great, uh, grapevine, Texas, sitting in the parking lot in the freezing cold after we had a session with a client where he cried and told us that, he would have paid us 10 times the amount of our fee if he would have known what it was like. And we're like, well, I guess we have to do this. Well, we can, uh, we can, we can restructure the invoice and resend it to you if you want. Yeah, to I know. <laughs> we think about that a lot. Like, you know, <laughs> set your value. So anyway, yeah, that's, um, that's the, that was sort of the, the roots of root and river. Um, okay, and, good, good, so, good. Before, before we go further down that path of root and river, tell us about yourself, Justin. A little personal stuff. Go for yeah. it. Yeah. So I have a very, very non-traditional life. I sometimes say I'm the exact, in many ways, the exact opposite of Emily, which isn't entirely true because we both love books and learning and art and things, but conditionally very different. I grew up on a cattle ranch. I grew up on a 60,000 acre ranch in Eastern Oregon. Wow. 60,000 uh, acres. Okay. I grew up in a, in a, in a violent home, um, mm. very violent, um, abusive home, mm. uh, grew up a fundamentalist um, from a religious standpoint. Okay. And you know, there a lot of factors there. It, um, I didn't, I got married when I was 18. Um, I don't have a college degree. Um, and so, but my, my entrepreneurial career began in 2003, April of 2003, when the company I was the VP of sales for got sold by the parent company and they wanted, they offered me a position as a VP of sales in the, in the new company, but it was in Baltimore and I was living in Boise, Idaho at the time. And having been to Baltimore, I did not want to live there. Yeah. Um, and so with some other guys in that same company, we started our, I started a, like a marketing agency and, and then eventually I wasn't even involved in strategy. I was the rainmaker because that was my background, but it's through a series of events, a partner getting fired. I took that over and it always reminds me of what, and I, I got to visit a couple of times with Andy Roddick, the tennis player. And he's, and I asked him once, when did you know you were a tennis, going to be a tennis player? He goes, I was four years old. It was the first time my dad put a racket in my hand. And that's how doing a client session felt like a racket in my hand, like being this insecurity I had. And you have this sort of bravado from when you, when you, when you come from a, agricultural based fundamentalist violent family you create a persona that's a bit blustery and over the top and mm. but underneath it was this deep insecurity but when i started doing that i'm like damn i'm good at this and it was the first time i actually ever felt like i was good at something and i was okay. 30 32 years old at that time 
anyway, um, family-wise, uh, have two sons um, and a daughter-in-law. And my and my older son Logan and his wife, wonderful wife Sarah, just uh, two weeks ago made his grandparents. All right, Mr. nice, Mr. Fiverr Lincoln Foster. Now, what do you what what do you call? Are you Papa, Grandpa? What what what's your? I'm just Grandpa, but okay. I'm gonna okay. let him decide. Like he can call okay. me whatever he wants, you know. Um, All right. But as far as like, you know, official, you know, the pro tem title, that's what it would be. And then, uh, yeah, so they live in Portland. And then my younger son, Caden, lives here in Austin with some roommates. And he's a professional artist. So ah. to give him a shout out, check out Reluctant Hobo on Instagram. Oh, that's a nice plug for the kid. I like it. Oh, very nice. Now, he, now that 10% back to Rider Flex, just so we're on the same page. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. Thank you for that. Thank you for that overview, Justin. I appreciate it. Um, so both of you guys had tasted, a, the, you know, what it was like to be an entrepreneur slash consultant. You had both of you dealt with, you know, some clients and things and you had some stuff going on. And then you're at this conference and you see Emily up on stage. and You're like, hmm, I think I need to know her. So you, 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 you developed this relationship. And at some point, you guys decide to start Root and River. Was it over a series of meetings? You met a few times, and then one of you said, "Listen, why don't we just, you know, join forces?" How did that work? Who wants to go? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. Justin can can add his flavor. I um, so it was. I mean, I always like to say we we have this iron sharpens iron relationship, and so I think we're really we've met in the middle of challenge and improvement. And so I saw Justin actually speak at that conference prior to two years prior to us meeting. And at that time I was like, oh, he's, he's good at what he does and he's super mm. interesting. Mm. And then in full disclosure, I looked at his social profiles at the time and he was still in the fundamentalist situation. So it was a little bit right wing for me. And I was like, we're not going to be friends. <laughs> but then when I so knew that he was probably going to be at this conference again, I was like, I, I need to meet him. And so as soon as we met, we were just like, this idea and here's another way to make that better here's another way to look at that or you're going in this direction and that's good but here's another direction that you can go and so when he came in to do help me with the work and the brand and really guide a lot of the discovery process which he was phenomenal at i was like still in that mode like that was amazing however what about this and what about implementation doesn't matter if it's not implementable and so we just constantly like started on that um, cycle of improvement and challenge. And I think we were probably a, a couple months into it. And, I mean, his intention in doing the work with us was like, come in, do his thing, head out, typical yeah. kind of consultant formula. Right, right. And I was like, oh, hell no. Like, you're not <laughs> Because to me, it's like, all that is meaningless unless it gets into action. But so I just want him to leave. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah. go ahead, yeah. And then it was in that interaction of bringing those two things together that we were like, we could do this for other people. That the idea really started to germinate. And then we did a session just a mentioned earlier. And then it was like, now we kind of felt like we had to, we kind of had to do it. Okay. And who came up with the name? We did. I think, together. We both, I think there was maybe uh, wine and whiskey involved. <laughs> I remember that I think I'd been up, I'd been up um, early or something. And I was just sort of at that stage where, you know, sometimes you're at your most creative when you got, when you're exhausted, like the, because your thinking brain is shutting down and it goes down into your soul. And we just, it just sort of fell out of the sky after 
some inquiry. I like it. Like, I like we're it. big fans of inquiry-based like thinking anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just it just came and like what does every brand has? It has a root. Okay, that's the first one. And well, there's a couple things too. We know we didn't want it to be Sikorsky, Foster, Foster, Sikorsky. We wanted it to be two words that that didn't normally go together. So one, uh, so because like sometimes we say sometimes Emily's the root, sometimes I'm the root, sometimes she's the river, sometimes I'm the river. Okay. And then then we're like, well, what happens after it roots? Well, it flows out into the world like a river. I mean, and then boom, there we were. All and right. Look look for the domain, and I think bought it on the spot. I like I like it. Now, my, here's an important question. Was Emily the whiskey and you were the wine or how was that? <laughs> I go either way. It depends on my mood. <laughs> Get, Emily, give been, us. It could have been gin and whiskey. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, um, give us, give us like an elevator pitch. Why don't you give us like, I don't know, just like a two or three minute boom. Just hit me with it. You're, I'm a CEO. You're trying to get my attention. Give it to me. Go for it. So we believe every great brand is a spiritual experience and we work with defiant leaders who are ready to be courageous in the world to help them uncover and articulate their brand language and their rollout and engagement strategies. And then we provide support to their CMO and their marketing team in order to take an intrinsic, the intrinsic brand that they are out into the world in a way that's so organic, it does not feel like marketing. And it doesn't trigger the marketing bias in the market. So we're guides for our clients. We are collaborators. We're non-prescriptive. So we don't tell you what your brand is. It, it flows out of you. And we help you, we help you articulate in a way that is resonant in the market. Um, we mm. are individuals who love art and we bring art into everything that we do with our clients. We hope that everything that you experience with Root and River is an artful experience. And that may be actual, I sketch and draw throughout our discovery sessions and throughout our our process of working with our clients. So it may be artful in that way, or it may be artful in um, how Justin is bringing words together and sort of pinpointing something you've been meaning to say for all of your life. Uh, But our value is around that. Yeah, that's around art. Very nice. Very, very nice. Thank you for that. Do you want to elaborate, Justin? You want to add on there? I would only add a, just a couple of things. One is is that the 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 main deliverable of our work, if if you're you know pitching a CEO or a, or a CMO, the main deliverable of our work is language because language is at the root of everything. Language, like you look at it from a big societal standpoint, is language creates the movement that creates the hierarchy that becomes the culture. Mm-hmm. Like everything comes from language. Um, it says in the Bible, "In the beginning was the Word," as an example of that. Um, is that you got to get your language right. And what a lot of organizations do is they get their infrastructure right, they get their amplification strategy right, because that's what ad agencies do and PR firms and stuff. But their language is boring, um, uninteresting, unoriginal, cliched. And we all, well, one of our many, many metaphors is, is that we help you make hot sauce, not ketchup. If you want ketchup, hire an agency. I like that. We're in the hot sauce business. And so but the hot sauce is the language that's then experienced through the culture and the customer experience and those other, those other elements. Um, the other thing I would add here is that there's a specific like type of company we don't work with. We okay. actually, we have a warning label on our website. We don't work with assholes. We have a firm, no asshole rule. We don't work with companies that aren't trying to, that are, that are not some embodiment of goodness. Like they don't okay. have to be B Corps or, or nonprofits or anything, but, the cult where the culture of the organization is organized around love and service and 
goodness and th humanity, things like that. If you're not that, then we're not a fit. Mm. And then the third one is if you, we can't give you courage. Um, and it takes tremendous courage to be a brand. And we can't give you that. That's non-transferable. Uh, and so uh, tepid, timid, um, worried about what other people think, CEOs, not for us. Gotcha. Who are you targeting? Startup phase, uh, under 100 million, under 50 million. I mean, who, who's your target as far as company size goes? It really depends on the leader, that individual leader and the marketing leader. We typically don't work with startups because they've got a lot of other things that need to fall into place before they can dig into language and commit to consistency. And a lot of startups are still in that experimentation phase around the business model. Um, now, if you have a clear idea of the business model and it's rooted in a, in a rich and deep belief system mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you want to make the mission the center of your brand, then we would consider that. But typically, startups in our experience aren't there yet. Um, we've, we've worked with plenty in the past and have found that discovery. And then to answer your question, typically our clients, yeah, they're, they're from kind of a million to 50 million um, and okay. they have, but they tend to have smaller teams, maybe 30, 50, 150, because we're great when we can come in and once that brand language is articulated, we train and we roll out in these concentric circles in a way that is inclusive and then engages the entire organization in the practice of branding. And we consider branding a practice for everyone in the organization to be equipped, well-equipped to, to do every day. That's, I would say, where our sweet spot is if, if pressed to create one. Okay. So, Justin, so what I heard Emily say there was you got revenue, you've gotten started, you've, you've reached proof of concept to a certain degree, you slapped up a website, you got some, you know, you, you're, you're living, you're breathing, you're cashing checks, but you probably didn't spend a lot of time on good language and and, and things that need to be defined. You just stuck a product out there and it started selling and oh shit, now we got 10 employees and we're doing 5 yeah. million and we don't even yeah. know what our mission yeah. statement is or values or anything else. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, that's that a very common thing with us. It's, okay. it's, it's, it's where, what I think, um, I think is a common thing, Steve, is that there are the founder or the CEO or the CMO, they're, they're, in, they're, they're in love with their product, but they're not in love with their brand. Mm. And, and, and that's great that you love your product, but nobody else gives a shit. So you have to be in love with your brand too. And, and or at least want to fall in love with your brand. You need to okay. want to do that. Um, and so there does come a time when you can sort of, it's kind of like you, I'll use a, like a, being a recording artist, like being a musician, like an independent musician where you can cobble together the band and you can race, do a GoFundMe and get a, get a record made and everything. But if you, at some point, you got to go pro. You got to turn pro, as Stephen Pressfield talks about. And that turning pro is often where we come in. That early mm. stage stuff, unless it's their second or third startup and they have learned their lesson because wisdom comes from experience, then, but, but, but it's at that point. Usually, I would say, what do you think, Em? Like year three, okay. like after startup, is about the first time they start going, you know, our message isn't very good and our competitors mm -hmm. are kicking our ass. And we're hiring salespeople and they don't know what to say. And, and then what creeps in two things, an identity crisis, which is fatal to a brand mm. and uh, drift from values because you start to say whatever you need to say in order to get that deal. 
Well, don't you do yeah. that in the beginning too? <laughs> yeah, but, but if you, yeah, that happens where a little bit like you say yes to everything and you're hustling, but that kind of hustle is unsustainable if you're trying to create an enduring, ubiquitous brand. Mm, I like it. Okay, very good. Thank you. How big is the company now? How many besides you two? We have an immediate team of four, core team, and then we have a studio partnership team of about eight to ten that we okay. draw from for our clients. Okay, and it's been, and you guys have been together for four years. Six, It'll, six years, almost yeah. seven. Six, six years, seven years. Okay, and can you talk about uh, revenue targets, revenue goals, uh, how big the company is? Can you give us an idea, or is that something you want to keep on the down low? It's okay if you do. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's fine. We just passed, um, last year, we passed a half million in revenue, over a half awesome. million in revenue. Um, awesome. Our first, you know, like, big kind of um, goal is to, to hit, pass that $1 million mark. And we were really on track to do that before this little thing <laughs> called the global pandemic hit. But right. we're, uh, we're grateful for it, actually, because it made us really look at what we're doing and simplify and, and gave us some space to rethink um, not just the goals, but how we're getting there. And I think in the long term, we're going to be better situated because of that. Um, but be our goal is like every day is around profitability. Like Justin probably gets sick of me ringing the profitability bell. So it's looking at all of our offerings and making sure that each offering is profitable. And um, we didn't do that quite honestly in the early days, you know, because you are hustling and you're like, oh, let's take this, let's take this. But once I educated myself around the numbers and the finances of a company and really got into profitability. I, I would just encourage everyone who's listening, if they haven't gone down that trail and geeked out on, on profitability, it's, I highly recommend doing that. Now for you, profitability is all about what you're paying yourselves and your people, right? Cause you don't have any inventory. You don't have an office. So there's not a lot of an overhead overhead. So your margin is basically whatever, the, whatever the client pays you minus payroll, unless I'm missing something. No, we do have, you're, you're mostly right. We do have a very uh, reasonable office space, both in Phoenix oh. and in Austin. So oh, we're in the city. Oh, uh -huh. oh, oh, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, but beyond that, we, all of our team works remotely. Um, so we are pretty lean in that. Um, it's certainly an advantage, but the disadvantage of that is that we have committed to, not, we're an unagency. So we work directly with our clients and we're not following an agency model. Oh. So we're limited by the amount of time that we can sell. Um, because we have committed to work directly with our clients. You work with Justin and I. So, so you have to get a little creative um, when, you're, when you're looking. And you have, to, what we've learned is you very, do very conscious, conscious of the time investment. And um, if you do want to pay yourself, you need to figure that in when you're, uh, you're working to price your offering. Now you guys bootstrapped this, right? You didn't take on any cash or, or you didn't take any outside cash besides the money and time you put in on your own. Did you, or did you? Emily's Southwest credit card for travel for a while. <laughs> uh, no, we didn't get a loan. We did bootstrap it. Um, we were smart in that um, Emily kept her J job for the first year, um, year plus, um, and that, you know, allowed us to be a little bit more lean um, with that. And I think there's two other things that are unique about our business model, if you don't mind if I bring them up. Go for um, it, yeah. So one is, is that, and I'm speaking for myself here, that I am not in business to be in business. I am in business to be in business with Emily. Um, like I was a lone wolf and I was doing okay as a lone wolf. But when I started to realize that, and this is a big thing for me personally, as a nearly 50 year old white guy, 
is the future of everything is going to be around the feminine. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean male, man, woman. It means like feminine energy. If you look at it from like a mythological standpoint, going way back to, you know, tens of thousands of years of these cycles. And I just saw it coming and I just knew that Emily was going to kind of be the, the Helen of Troy of this idea, as it were, or, like or, or Cleopatra, you know, historically. Wow. And I, I bring that up because he's, he's pumping you up, Emily. He's pumping you up. Wow. I know. Wow. That's a lot. Well, <laughs> I'm ready for it. The reason I bring this in this business model context is that um, we don't do stuff that we don't want to do. Um, gotcha. We don't, we don't, we don't, we, we, we're not opposed to scaling. We just don't, we're not motivated by like 10 Xing or any of that horse shit. Okay. That's why we, what that does is that mission orientation framework um, allows us to stick to our guns about how, what we want to get paid to do because our, basically our model or our like our, our, our benchmark to this is, is it work we would love to do and do we love doing it and do we love the people we're doing it with? Mm -hmm. so early on, the answer was not always yes and yes, but it is now and it's very much by design. Um, so I think those are factors in there too where you could say, you know, well, that's a lifestyle thing, but it's bigger than that. It's like, we're, 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 there's a reason we're in business together and it's to make change in the world, to inspire leaders to go inward and to increase consciousness in the world as well. I like it. Now that right there is a magical place to be. If you own a service business, once you reach that pivot point of being able to say, no, Mrs. Client, I do not want to work with you. And I have plenty of clients over here and my lifestyle is just fine. I do not have to work with ass assholes. Once you reach that, it's a magical place to be. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. And it, it doesn't is. have to, it doesn't have to be a $20 million company, right? I mean, you, it can be a 500,000, $1 million nice lifestyle company. And, and as long as you're cool with what that pays you and you're getting to work with awesome people, like Justin said, then, Hey, great. Awesome. That's a magical place to be. Um, mm -hmm. We, we are at that phase at Riderflex too. Uh, it wasn't like that in the early days when we were like, Oh shit, I need, we need a client like tomorrow so I can pay the mortgage. But now we are at a place where, you know, we can say yes or no. And I love having those conversations with my co-founder, Scott. I'll be like, do we want to work with them? I don't know. Let's think about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a good place to be. I think too, the blessing of our age is that now, because we have sort of taken that pressure off and built the business intentionally that way, we can look at other opportunities, um, mm -hmm. subscription models, content driven. I mean, we've already mm -hmm. written a book together. We have another one underway and we can make, we can use extra space that we might have to develop Good. those other streams. And that I think for a lot of entrepreneurs is a new way of thinking. You know, it, it is this whole idea of like you can scale laterally into different areas once you've established your, your brand and your primary business model. Mm -hmm. I agree. What's the scariest moment been for you together so far? You, you, mm -hmm. you want to go first, Emily? Yeah, go, you probably each have a scary moment, sure. I'm guessing. Well, I mean, there was some, uh, I don't, I'm not really good with time. I can't remember actual times that Justin will be able to fill in when this was, but there was a moment where I, it was just more of that eat and kill mentality and summer in Arizona. And that's always a really difficult time, uh, you know, seasonally. And we weren't getting many leads. And I was just like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big believer in if I well, we need to say that because it's well, okay. Well, can I hit you say, one more time? I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Well, yeah. you're, you're, you cut out on me. I want to make sure we get that in for the listeners. I'm a big believer in what? 
I'm a big believer when an emotion or an idea hits you that's difficult, like maybe I don't want to do this anymore. Our tendency as human beings is to suppress that, shove it away, don't look at it, put it in the corner. Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in bringing those questions out and saying, though I'm shaking and I'm scared of what it might mean, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And I want to let that sit out there for a day or two. And I want to be able to re-opt in with enthusiasm and love or not do it at all. Does you she know, call then you? move on. Does she call you, Justin? She's like, hey, man, I'm out. I'm out. I'm done. I didn't but say I'm out. Other, she didn't say she's out. But we every, every <laughs> at, at the end of every year, we have a partner retreat. And we ask each other the same question. The last, I think we've done this five years in a row now, um, which is, do you want to keep doing this? Um, okay. Because if you don't, then we're, we're violating the core essence of we, we're doing this together for a reason, you know? Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, yeah, my, my scariest moment is it was it's just about like, I guess this would have been like two years ago. Okay. And um, we got a big fish. We got a, um, we got a big client, like okay. a big project. And Emily was like, we're, we're going to make it a three-year deal and we're going to have this kind of retainer. And there was like, there's no effing way that they're going to say yes to this. And I was so anxious about it. I started having like panic attacks, like, like these, like, like a hyperventilating, you know, and I'm, I'm an anxiety riddled person anyway. So because what it was to be like transparent and be on the other side of it was an insecurity about my own worth. Mm. Like, um, I, I knew we were good at what we did, but I didn't feel that we were that good, but she was adamant, like, Nope, this is what it's going to be. And they, they signed it without negotiating and they are wonderful. They are, they're, all of our clients are our best clients, but they have been <laughs> instrumental in um, our success and we've been instrumental in theirs and it's a beautiful partnership. And it was a great example of the, the, the tag team, the, the rope, like a roping team, because um, the, we ended up getting this lead because of a speech that I gave like okay. several years prior but we ended up getting the lead because of that. We got the deal because of Emily's uh, understanding and obstinance related to value. Very good. Now, I'm, I'm glad you shared that story with me, but it's created another question. Now, is this client so big that it's like half of this 500,000? Are, are they a giant chunk of your overall income? And does that worry you if they are? Um, they're, a, they're a healthy portion of our income, but they're not the only big fish. Uh, luckily, okay. we've been able to attract other big fish. And um, that's why thinking about those other revenue streams is always top of mind for me because um, yes. I realize the risk associated with working with bigger clients. Unfortunately, because of our model and our desire to stay as an elite team, right. Right. we have to, we sort of assume a little bit more risk there. And we do other things to mitigate that, such as a longer term contract. Um, and required notice uh, that's a bit longer than maybe the industry standard to try to protect ourselves. So yeah, great question. Those are great tips though, Emily, right there, just for the listeners. I just want to recap that. Mm -hmm. A small team is okay. And a small team can can have a couple of big fish in your client portfolio. But what you've done right there is you're already working towards other revenue streams to protect yourself, whether it's the book or anything else, which is a good idea just to have a little safety net in case one of those clients falls off. Um, Got it. Okay. I like that. Very, very, very good. I appreciate you guys being so willing to share so much for the listeners, but because I know the the entrepreneurial listeners we have, they're like, okay, well, how are they, how are they doing that? How are they, what, what what kind of risk is there? 
let me let me add this too is this it's a unique thing for us is that yes there's this audience we work like with like him said with the cmo of a mid-sized company that's got a small team that loves branding doesn't know how to do it that's our that's our jam that's our business model per se like but we have attracted um other people to the business as far as like clients that i would put under the general bucket of knowledge entrepreneurs okay consultants coaches thought leaders great they got a book they got a coaching practice they got something and we love working with them and mm. it's really impactful work i mean the stuff we're doing they're going to use for the rest of their business life that's good and and so i think it, we i think it's interesting to be able to sometimes there's the market you want to go get and that's its own strategy. And sometimes it's being flexible to accept the market you do get. Um, and that's a, it's a big lesson in humility. It's like the market is a fickle mistress. It's going to tell you, and you can have all these grand designs about who you think your audience is, but the only evidence of that is whether or not you're getting deals on a consistent basis. Right. Let me ask you this. Um, sometimes co-founders, and, and I'm, I know you don't have titles on your LinkedIn profile, which I love, but technically or not i don't even know if technically is the right word but i guess you're kind of co-ceos unless have you determined hey if the shit hits the fan and we're really arguing this person's in charge or do you flip a coin talk to me about the structure of your of your co-founder relationship well i love i love that steve um so i think it was obviously we both believe in equality and that's the whole point of us partnering um I think in the evolution of the business, I have become the CEO in terms of okay. the way I look at the business and tend to some of the more, the financial aspects and, um, and that's, a, that's, that's just a role and that's, that's part of, part of one of my roles in the company. Okay. And I okay. think Justin is more, is uh, the chief strategist by far. He's always pushing and also probably the chief innovator. I kind of tend to get set in my ways and I like to have a steady flow. And he's always like, let's create something new or let's keep, you know, going down this path when I'm ready to, to hightail it back to the parking lot. Um, so we have this great balance, but it's not always, you know, I mean, the, the most important thing in our business is our relationship. Mm. So I don't think there's one decision maker. We always have, we've agreed from the beginning to come to the table and find a way to work together to come to a solution. Even if that's, that's, solution at the moment would be a parting of ways. I mean, we don't want to do that. And I don't see that in the future, but we are open to figuring it out together on equal footing. Do you have your uh, operating, operating agreement all lined up and squared away in case you guys decide to fight? Special insurance in case one of us dies and the other person, so the other person can get bought out. We, we've, we've done a lot of things, a lot of things, right. I think it's um, good. good. I think that, because we don't have like formal roles, everything is, in a, is, a, is, a, is a discussion. Great. And ultimately we respect each other so much that if someone has a really strong feeling about something, not so much a strong opinion, because we both have strong opinions, but if somebody has a strong feeling, intuition, inclination towards something or something feels visceral, we honor that in each other. And oh, the best part is when it's the best part of it is when we both feel that way. That's where create, create like that creative energy comes from that leads to innovation and, and great content and all the things that, that we believe in. 
you know, I was joking around kind of just giving you guys a hard time, but for the listeners, just so they understand it, it's really so important, especially as, as a young company where there's two co-founders involved, I highly encourage you to have a clean operating agreement and a cap table and an equity structure that is out there and it's all designed to protect you in case something does happen. And we all hope it doesn't. We all, you know, most co-founders love each other and we all want it to work obviously because you're building a company together. But for the listeners, you know, the reason I'm pushing Justin and Emily on this is because you guys seem very close as friends. You obviously are very close. Your relationship and your passion for each other is super evident, but I want the listeners to know while that's cool, you better also have your operating agreement in place and structured yes. <laughs> the right yes. way. <laughs> and you, yeah, and, and I won't go even further with that, Steve. Get ready to have another marriage if you're married already. Like this is, right. is not for the faint of heart. We argue a lot. We disagree sure. a lot. And it's a ton <laughs> of work. And if you don't want a work on an intense relationship like that to be part of your business, well, I mean, you're going to have relationships in your business, but be careful. Check yourself on the partnership level. Yes. Maybe a partner is not right for you. Maybe instead you want to build a, a network of supportive people. Um, so it is a ton of work and you've got to be willing to put the work in. So just be cautious and do a project together with that person. Like start slow. Don't just die right in. Um, I would and definitely caution people. So that's a great segue into the next question I was going to ask you, Emily, was, you know, how to pick a co-founder. So you kind of answered it. Would you also add in there, you know, somebody that complements your skill set or that's opposite from you in many ways, like Justin is somewhat of your yin versus yang, yeah. it sounds like? I think somebody who's comfortable, more or less comfortable challenging you is excellent. So whether mm -hmm. that's challenging and skill set or challenging your thinking, I think that's essential. Um, mm -hmm. And honestly, I mean, I did, we both believe in defiance, so we're both a little defiant people. And I had great training growing up with my brothers, but I still don't really... I've had to change my relationship to conflict because it's necessary in a healthy business partnership over the years. So I've had to push myself to bring out more of my hidden resentments and things like that along the way. <laughs> um, but that's, that's really vital. So yes, look for somebody who compliments, but also someone who's not afraid to challenge you and that you feel like you can rise to the challenge. Like the challenge is from a place of love and improvement. Mm, because good. ultimately you're going to have to do a lot of work on yourself and that's whether or not you have a business partner. Um, so you have to be open to that as well and open to somebody holding that mirror up for you to do that work. That's good stuff. Justin, what would you add to uh, selecting a co-founder? Uh, spiritual alignment. I okay. don't mean like necessarily the same exact belief systems, ideologic, you know, from an ideology standpoint or theology standpoint, but spiritual alignment is the yin and yang. It's the sense that, that the, the pieces go together well. And um, this is why in the work that we do, one of the, so we have this kind of um, structure where there's below the soil work, like the interior work. And one of those things is, what is the belief system of the brand? Well, and we all, always say to the, to the client, all right, well, here's your five core beliefs. How many of these can you, can someone violate and still be on the team? And if it's more than two, you're just inviting disaster. And the same rule applies to partnership. So, mm -hmm. or, or picking a co-founder. And is that, so you gotta know what you believe in and what's important to you, what we often call them non-negotiables or what, you would you be, what would you be willing to go to jail over? Like from a civil, like a, a civil disobedience standpoint, you know, stuff like that, real visceral, like deep shit, like about what's inside of you. Um, 
the second is, is you want, I, I think it's vitally important to have, to be in partnership with someone that has an imagination. Um, I can't imagine being a pun intended in partnership with someone that didn't have an imagination. I've had other businesses and that was a common thread from the first business I was in to the next one, the next one, and then now with Reverend and Emily is that my partners have always had an imagination and a vivid imagination, almost a childlike wonder towards possibility. I, I, I can be a bit of a nihilist. I can be a bit of a, I can be a bit negative and, and being reminded that it's okay to imagine is such a vital thing. And I think that would be true in any co-founder situation that you want someone with an imagination. Good stuff, Justin. Let me uh, ask you this regarding uh, entrepreneurial stuff. Two uh, friends are uh, down at the tavern. They meet down there every Thursday for their happy hour and they, they're ready to quit their jobs. They want to start a business service business. We'll stick to service business, right? Uh, one, one of them is like, hey, listen, I, I, can, I might be able to get this one client. And the other one's like, yeah, I might be able to get a client. But they're kind of scared. They both have big mortgage, a couple of kids at home. They're both making 150 grand a year. Their spouses don't work, <laughs> uh, but they want to start something together. Uh, what, do you, uh, what, what advice would you give them today? I would say three things. First one is start planning today and have a have an off ramp. I mean, that was the way I did it. I'm okay. a very practical person and I was, you know, definitely part of the breadwinning strategy here at home. So I had to create, I had to work my ass off for two years to really create my off ramp. Mm. And that just gives you so many more options, lets you be more creative. So that's number one. Number you two say, is you're going to be looking you, for the right. Mm -hmm. When you say off ramp, I just want to clarify, do you mean, I got six months worth of cash before I'm, I got to go find a job. Is that what you mean? Off ramp? Yeah, it could be that just depending on your risk tolerance. So okay. take an inventory of your resources and um, figure that out. Or if you need to work for another year and then build the business quietly in the background, that could be part of the off ramp okay. or okay. combination of both. I got, think. It. got it. The second thing is you're going to be trying to figure out how to do it the right way. And there is no right way. <sighs> Everyone, every entrepreneur, you know, including like, Mark Cuban is making it up as they go along. Amen. We'll give you certain strategies <laughs> and thoughts, but there is ain't no right way. Let's just get, put that out there. And then lastly, this will be lonely, emotionally difficult work. And so you build a tribe to help support you. Mm. Find people that will be your cheerleaders from beginning to end outside of your business partner, if that's a thing for you. Find other people and outside of yourself who are going to just love you up and give you cookies and milk and send you back out on the field <laughs> or say, you know what, you can, uh, cut, you know, cut it out for the day and just take the rest of the day out. Find the people that are going to be there to support you and um, invest in those relationships. I, I love it. Justin, tell me, what, what would you, what would you say to those? Yeah. Yeah. I love all those three. Totally agree with him. Two more that came to mind is, um, you, you got to get your emotional house in order. If you've got, if you're a trauma survivor uh, and you've, and you've not gotten treatment for that, that's like a, a hidden brain injury and it will affect, it will come out under pressure and you'll start to do stupid shit because you haven't dealt with those deeper wounds. So short version of that is if you, if, even if you haven't had trauma, too much trauma, go to therapy, you can do some inner work. 
Um, the second thing I would say is don't ever, you got to find the part of the business that you don't want anybody else to do. Like, like there's an element, like you can delegate and everything, but if you're in business, it's probably because you have some level of passion for the work itself. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have a buddy of mine um, in Boise, Idaho, Brandon Wright, who owns a plumbing company. And he, he's got like, I don't know, he's got like 80 employees and it's a successful, but he goes out and does plumbing because he enjoys it. Gotcha. Um, and I think that's really, really important to keep that part alive, at, like a ember as you grow and change and evolve and all the other things. Great stuff from both of you on that. I know we're almost out of time. One more question for each of you. Justin, if you could call, and I'm going to use specifically 18 years old, because that's when you made that decision to get married. Um, Mm -hmm. If you could call that 18 year old before wedding day, what would you tell him? Mm. Um, I don't know. To be honest with you, Steve, I would have told him anything different than he did. Okay. Which is, I've always listened to the, the drums in the distance and what in fact wanted to go find out what they were. I've always gone with my instinct, always gone with my in- intuition. I've been burned. My ego and my emotional health issues have at times have gotten in the way. But if you feel like something is right for you, it doesn't matter what other people think. One of the things I think back to that time is people telling us we were too young. Well, everybody telling us we were too young had a shitty marriage. <laughs> it was like, you, you got no credibility with me. And I, I feel that way across the board. You're like somebody who feels this way about, well, here's what you ought to do in your business. I'm like, yeah, well, you're an alcoholic and your kids hate you. So that's not success to me or, or whatever. Or you, you made a deal with the devil in, uh, you know, right? to, in some form. And uh, now, now what do you do when, you, when you've chopped up your soul and sold it to, to the highest bidder, you know, that type of stuff. And so I, I, I think I would just say, keep, I would say, put it this way. I would say, keep going, just keep, keep going. going. Okay. Okay. Very good. Emily, last question for you. If you had to define your core purpose in life outside of your immediate family, your husband and two, two mm-hmm. kids, what would that sound like? It would be to reconnect people to their creative selves and to inspire undivided living. So we've divided ourselves up. We're like, oh, this part, oh, I'm the, I spoke to somebody this morning. I'm a creative. Nobody knows that. She runs a very successful CFO company in New York City. I was actually on a Broadway show as a dancer, but nobody knows that. Interesting. Yeah. And I hear that over and over again. And that was me at one point mm. where I was like, I have this creativity, but it's not practical. And I need to put it in this box and then go do my life. And what I want to do, what I want to bring to the world and where I want to meet people is at the place where they're like, I don't want to do that anymore, but I don't know how to blend and integrate these two lives. Mm. And um, so that's what I feel I'm here to do through my from work with Fruit and River, through my own personal writing and um, helping people sort of uncover that and reconnect to their creative soul. I like it. I like it. Thank you so much for sharing that. So for the listeners, if they want to get a hold of you guys, right? Uh, they, they're like, man, these guys are fascinating. I want to, I need help. I need to call them. Do they go to uh, rootandriver.com? Is that the best thing to do? Um, anything else you want to mention there? That is I mean, the best thing to social- do. Yeah, that's, yeah. Our, that's our preferred because you get to read our content. You get a sense, you read our warning label. 
And what we always say is if it, if you feel a pull, let's talk. It doesn't mean we're going to do a business right now. It doesn't mean you could, if you feel a pull to contact us, don't talk yourself out of it because the conversation you have with us is free. Like the initial one, like we don't, we just want to know what your story is and what you want to do. And we want to see if we vibe with you energetically. Um, and then of course you can follow us on social um, at root and river on all the, all the places. Our team does a fantastic job of, repurposing our content and in, in that kind of in those platforms. Um, Kat and Jen do a great job with that. Um, and then we have a book, uh, you can see it kind of behind me there, uh, okay. called Rooting Up. It's essays on modern branding. It's 44 essays divided up into three kind of principles of modern being a modern leader. Um, and uh, it's available on Amazon and, okay. or you can order it in bulk off our website. It's one of those great team read books. So if you've got a team and you're trying to get everyone to raise their brand intelligence a little bit, this book is perfect for that. Um, is, it, is, it on, is it on Audible? It's not on Audible yet because of the, the just, I think we were probably going to do some Audible, but then COVID hit and then we're like, we can't be in the same space. So we, we, we're going to come back to that. Maybe book two that we're working on will be on Audible, but it is on Kindle and it is available in print on Amazon. Very good. Thank you so much, Emily and Justin, for being on the RiderFlex podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button. If you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to hit that little bell next to the subscribe button so you can be notified when we release a new episode. Our show features entrepreneurs, business executives, and the stories behind how they got there, as well as daily tips on career advice and job interviews. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get information on the recruiting and consulting services we provide. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.